0: Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, Mr. and Mrs. North America and all the ships at sea. This is Philip Terzian, literary editor of the Weekly Standard, and this is our weekly podcast of the Books and Arts section uh, today for the July 28th issue of the Weekly Standard. And as always, I pray the Books and Arts section is a lively and informative selection of pieces for readers. I begin this week with a somewhat longer than usual but very rewarding essay by James Caesar, the distinguished um, professor of politics at the University of Virginia, um, who is reviewing a a book entitled The Once and Future King, The Rise of Crown Government in America by F.H. Buckley, published by Encounter Books. Um the uh the title obviously is a play on the T. H. White novels um Once in Future King I guess on which Camelot was based. Um and like any good book, it's a slight overstatement of the thesis of the book, but it is basically a a a, a history of the the development of what we used to call, and I guess still do, depending on whose party is in power, the imperial presidency. Mr. Buckley's thesis is that um, um, Mr. Buckley, by the way, is a, a teaches at George Mason University in Northern Virginia. But his thesis basically is that the presidency has has very much first among equals uh, in our three branches of the federal government, and that this is very distant from what um, the founders had in mind with their tripartite system of checks and balances. And like any good political scientist, um, Buckley has a couple of uh, structural solutions, uh, one of which, uh, which as Caesar suggests he's probably not entirely serious about, is converting from a presidential system to a parliamentary system. However, having said all that, um, Jim Caesar's essay about this is um, a fascinating read through the uh, through the history of the development of the of the the imperial presidency and also what it what it means for our current government and how uh, how in fact um, presidents of both parties and for obvious uh, sort of reasons of of self-interest have have benefited and and promoted the, benefited from and promoted the development of the imperial presidency, at the cost to some degree of of the legislature and the judiciary. So it's a great essay, a very interesting essay, and an interesting book. And I hope you find it as interesting as I did. As I did, it is followed by a piece by Judy Bachrock of a a review of a book entitled lincoln dreamt he died the midnight visions of remarkable americans from colonial times to freud by andrew burstein which is a this is one of those curious kind of cultural history volumes that historians churn out occasionally but one recurring theme in american history and folklore is is dreams and visions not necessarily of famous people, but people from all walks of life, uh, which are often seen as emblematic of the people themselves, or somehow symbolic uh, of of who they are, what they were doing, or auguries of the future. It refers, of course, to the famous incident, which I think I think the author, and certainly our reviewer, thinks is probably uh, at may or may not be true about Lincoln. Uh, telling uh, people that he had a dream that uh, I think every everybody knows the story of Lincoln had a dream that uh, he was in the White House wandering around and could hear mourning voices, and somebody told him he asked what was wrong, and somebody said, oh, the president has died, he's been assassinated, and, of course, it's Lincoln himself. Whether this actually occurred, who can say? But who better write about this than Judy Bachrock, who has just written a very interesting and, and sort of tart little volume called Glimpsing Heaven, The Stories and Science of Life After Death. Um, she's not necessarily a believer in that, but but a chronicler of people who think they've experienced something like that or what we call near-death experiences and whatnot. Um, this book about American dreams throughout history is is somewhat in that realm, and an interesting exploration of a kind of unexplored region of American culture, which is followed by a review by Joshua Galanter of a new book from Yale called Naturalists at Sea, Scientific Travelers from Dampier to Darwin by Glenn Williams. And, uh, Sir William <coughs> William Dampier, rather, being a, an early English explorer of... Um, of uh, the globe and Darwin obviously being Charles Darwin, whose his voyage as the sort of resident biologist on the HMS Beagle uh, led ultimately to The Origin of Species and the Theory of Evolution. Uh, it's an interesting, uh, it's one of those nice books which tells us about the early um, Europeans largely who took to the seas at a, time when uh, setting out on a wooden vessel on the atlantic or pacific uh, oceans uh, was a very uh, formidable task and not only did they did they do it and did they prevail but they also gleaned extraordinary uh, scientific and biological uh, information which we've benefited from ever since it's a fun read sounds like an interesting book which is followed also by a piece uh, by Robert Whitcomb, uh, a former colleague of mine in the Providence Journal in New England um, who is uh, a New Englander by birth but has family connections to Duluth and this is a book called Zenith City Stories from Duluth by Michael Fedow it's published by the University of Minnesota Press and it's one of those um, one of those books that University presses often do, depending on where they are, they will often produce what I call provincial volumes. I mean, the University of New Mexico Press will often have a few volumes each year on the flora and fauna of New Mexico or New Mexico history or what have you. This is true of all the main academic presses. And I was intrigued by this selection of stories, which are not fictional, by the way. They're sort of essays about Duluth. Duluth being a... a, a medium-sized city uh, at the edge of the lake in Minnesota, which, in some ways, is very remote from the experience of most Americans, but in other ways, is actually a kind of typical mid-sized American city. And Whitcomb has a kind of funny, wry perspective on it, based a little bit on his own experience visiting there as a as a child, um, but um also it's it's a it's a nice essay exploring what it is that makes places like Duluth distinctive and how our country is very much a enormous conglomeration of very distinct and very uh unique communities which are in some ways as you approach them they may look all the same with the with the Midas Muffler and the Exxon stations at the outskirts, but once you get in and get to know the places, they're very different, and all all different in their particular way. That is followed by a review of an exhibition at the National Portrait Gallery in Washington uh, called American Cool. The author of the piece is Ryan Cole, who um, often writes for our pages, and he has a kind of funny take on the exhibition which is largely a a selection of photographs of sort of modern celebrities who the curators have decided are extraordinarily cool and um, they try to define what coolness is and of course readers and certainly Ryan Cole has a perhaps alternative vision of what it might mean but the the curator's vision is quite specific and it's a little silly and he has a little fun with it but Um, uh, uh, he says at one point, in any case, one gets the drift that the rebellion quotient was paramount in the selection process. Quote, this is a nation born in revolution, a country that has always valued rebellion. Uh, Dinnerstein explained to the Washington Post earlier this year, and Ryan adds, yes, from George Washington to Susan Sarandon, we're a nation of rebels. So as you can imagine, it's top-heavy with people like Madonna and Jimi Hendrix and Willie Nelson and so on. But um, he has a lot of fun. Of course, a lot of these museum exhibits, the fun of them is reading the sort of um, uh, fatuous uh, uh, captions to all the photographs, and this one is no exception. Um, And he describes, for example, there's a picture of Willie Nelson who's described as that tireless advocate for... Marijuana legalization, parenthesis. No mention of the Taco Bell commercials um, that he and Johnny Cash cut back in the 1990s. So it's a funny piece about a kind of, uh, shall we say, all too typical contemporary museum exhibition. And since it's the National Portrait Gallery, uh, underwritten by your tax dollars. Our movie review this week by John Pothoritz is of Dawn of the Planet of the Apes. Um, I have reached the age now where I can say that I remember as an adolescent when the first of the Planet of the Apes movies arrived, so uh, I guess I can look back on this series with a certain uh, historic perspective. I, I did learn from John's piece that of course, at the time there was i guess the first one was Planet of the Apes, and then there was Return of the Planet of the Apes, and I guess there were one or two other uh subsequent iterations of the same theme, but apparently there have been a lot over the years and this is the this is the most recent one and it's as you might imagine um we've gone beyond uh the sort of um thriller adventure side of the earlier. Versions and we now they're all very metaphorical and very um, allegorical, and the apes are are um, really a better version of human beings. And um, John's review is very funny, and it ends with a, a note that that I can't resist adding that one of the distractions for John was that in watching the movie, which is very earnest and treats. The humanity of the apes um, is a very serious and tragic um, uh, phenomenon. All he could think of was the Nairobi Trio, which was a skit that Ernie Kovacs used to do on his television program in the 1950s where uh, chimpanzees would be dressed in human costume and played in a a jazz uh, trio conducted by one who uh, had a cigar in his mouth and would sort of conduct the piano and... Uh, pianist and drummer, they were actually played by actors. He says actually that um, Frank Sinatra and Jack Lemmon once upon a time uh, participated in the skit as the piano players in disguise, of course. But I I sympathize with John um, how difficult it must have been to watch the movie in in earnest while in the back of his mind all he could think think of was a scene from Ernie Kovac's Nairobi Trio. Anyhow, that is this week's books and arts section. I hope these few minutes have <clears throat> impelled you to take a look at them. I, it was a great pleasure for me to talk to you, and I look forward to talking to you again about our books and arts section at this time next week. Thank you again.